0: You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. All right, you guys. um, Genesis chapter 32 is where we're going to be today. My name's Will. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, There are a lot of new faces here, and I know it's crowded. Um, and so, please bear with us as we transition to the new building. Um, the 9 a.m. If if you just like are too close to people, I'm getting over a cold, so you might want well to keep your distance from me. But like, if you're just like uncomfortable, the 9 a.m. is way more spacious. But please bear with us. We're we're going to be moving, like we said, hopefully October at the beginning of October. Um, if everything goes right with uh, with Tailgate Church and and the move time, and and we work hard, then uh, we might only have just a few more Sundays in this building. And so. We want to make the most of that time and just got kind of savor it and be thankful for what God's done here. And as we experience full crowds in this building, praise God that He's growing us outside of this building um, into a bigger space so we can reach more people. And, and let's let's make sure to acknowledge that God is good for that, right? Um, and so we're super thankful. Um, listen, I know a lot of people are getting over colds and stuff, and that, I think that's a symptom of the the weather's you know getting a little cooler in the mornings and whatnot. My wife got a pumpkin drink the other day for the first time of the year. Any pumpkin lovers? Okay, yep, that's about the number I expected. Um, it's fine. Um, she loves it, I, I've never understood it. And I always thought it was God's humor that I hate pumpkin flavor anything and I, I've landed in Pumpkinville, USA, um, is where I live now. But, um, but with, with uh, the fall season and spooky season comes Halloween and scary things, right? And uh, my daughter and I, my oldest daughter, we love watching scary movies. Um, Horror movies, any scary movie fans? Um, I love watching scary movies with her. Amanda won't watch them, so in my teenage daughter, what I found was someone who would watch scary movies with me. But what I've learned about myself is I hate haunted houses. Like, I can be scared through a screen, but I can't handle being scared in real life. It turns to throwing punches. And, um, like... (laughs) Some of y'all remember our church used to haunt the corn maze in Milton and it was fine when I was on offense, but when I'm on defense in a haunted house, it's a different ball game. I just don't play that. And, um, and, and really the main theme of the passage we're looking at today in Genesis 32 is fear. We're going to see how Jacob um, uses uh, the resources he has to manipulate and, and be sinful and it's all rooted in fear that he has. Now the Bible has a lot to say about fear and things that we're afraid of. And so I want to I kind of lead you through that discussion of fear and help you understand what you're afraid of and how fear can actually lead you astray from God's will, but how it can be redeemed uh, to, to worship and glorify God. Let's begin by reading um, Genesis 32. We'll start with the first five verses. It says, Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim, and Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau his brother in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my Lord Esau. Um, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. Now let me give a little bit of the context of what's happening. Jacob is the grandson of Abraham. God had made a covenant with Abraham and uh, Isaac and Jacob, and Jacob was a deceiver from the beginning. He was a, he's a, kind of a scoundrel. He's really one of the worst characters in the Bible, pretty deplorable. And what happens is Jacob, through commands of God and his parents, has to leave the promised land to go find a wife for himself so that he doesn't marry someone of the Canaanites. As he leaves and he goes to Laban's country, which is his mom's brother, um, he goes to find a wife. He ends up getting two wives because Laban tricks him and he's there for two decades. And so he spent 20 years out of the promised land and God shows up and tells him, it's time for you to return to the promised land. And so he begins his journey back. Laban pursues him and they have a conflict. Pastor Patrick preached about that last Sunday. And as he's coming back into the promised land, this is where we pick up the story today. He's returning into the promised land, and it hits him, this kind of epiphany light bulb moment. Oh crap, my brother is here. This, I'm going back to the area where my brother lives, and I have deceived him. I have, I have wronged him greatly. And the fear of his brother consumed him. And, and that's what we're going to see really kind of control his actions, the fear of Esau. Because he had tricked Esau. He had, you know, remember he traded a, a Denny Moore beef stew bowl for all of Esau's inheritance. He tricked him into giving away his inheritance. Um, he had put on, he dressed up like Sasquatch to, with his mom's help to, to get the blessing. And he lied to his blind elderly father to, to get the prophetic blessing um, from Isaac. And so he had greatly sinned against his brother and rightfully so he's afraid. And I want you as, you, as you walk through this sermon with me, to think about, just in the beginning here, what is your greatest fear? What are you most afraid of right now? Could be fear of losing loved ones, fear of losing them either in their mortality or um, losing them in a relationship falling apart. Are, are you afraid of your children rebelling? Are you afraid of, of losing security or wealth or finances? or comforts? Are you afraid of your own mortality or your own health? Um, and, and what I want you to see is those fears and that emotion of fear can actually be healthy, but it can very easily lead us into unhealthy places. And if our fear overcomes us, it will consume us. And we've got to have a right mindset about what we're afraid of. And so I've got two sermon points for you. I'm going to pull a Jeremy Berry today. I've actually got four points, but only two. Okay. It's tricky. Just, just hang with me. Okay. I've got two points and we're gonna go over them twice. Um, Number one is let go of all fear except fear of God. And number two is let go of all worship except worship of God. Um, What I want to show you is the exclusivity that we should have in our fear and reverence of God alone, not the circumstances or people around us, and our worship of God alone and not the idols that we create. And what happens is fearing the wrong things always leads to worshiping the wrong things. If your priorities and your, your greatest fears Are 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 misguided, and what scares you the most is not spiritually rooted. Then you will always begin to worship idols. You'll worship the things that you set up in your life. Let me show you this. Let's look at point one. Let go of all fear except fear of God. Now the Bible has a lot to say about fear. Often it's in the negative sense. Second Timothy one seven is an example of this. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self control. I've heard it quoted that the Bible tells us not to be afraid 365 times, one for each day of the year. But the emotion is useful and helpful in the right circumstances. There are times that you should be afraid, circumstances mandate it. When I was in high school, I was leaving school early one day, and I was rightfully signed out of school. I think I had a doctor's appointment or a dentist appointment or something like that. And I was old enough to drive, and so I go out and get in my truck. I was a senior. And um, I had this friend, I called him Cowboy. You know, he's bad news when he just goes by Cowboy and Cowboy comes out and he's wanting to leave school, but he's not signed out like I am. And so he's like, I'm just going to jump in the bed of your truck, Will. And I'm like, no, don't do it. But I don't really like care enough to stop him. And then when I'm leaving, you know, the principal has like important stuff and the vice principal is in charge of discipline. Well, so I'm leaving and I see the vice principal like standing at the end of the parking lot and I'm rolling up and this is like a police stop. I'm like scared to death. And, and he comes up and he, he starts talking to me. He's like, hey, this is a nice truck, Will. And I'm like, yeah, the front of it's really nice. Don't, don't look at the back. Like, Check out the, the hood and the engine and stuff. And um, I'm just like praying he doesn't look in the bed and, and Cowboy's in the bed like laying face down. And, um, and I'm like, oh, Cowboy, please just stay down. And he starts to ask me, he's like, hey, cowboy wasn't a class. Like, I, Do you know where he is? I know you are friends. I'm like, nope, I have no clue. And, I, and the fear that I feel, all right, like, like I'm about to get arrested or something, but I have this like, my, my heart is pounding out of my chest. And why did I feel that way? Because I was lying, because I was doing something wrong. I was aiding and embedding, right? And, and so all of that was a, was a right response. It was a good emotion that was produced in how God created me to be fearful of a circumstance where I should be fearful. Now, the problem and where it goes arise when we let fear control us in circumstances where God has told us to be bold and to trust in him. And here, Jacob is stepping into an occasion where he has done something wrong. He rightfully should fear the the fruit of his actions because he had sinned against his brother. His brother had every right carnally to kill him. So his fear is valid, but where, where he goes astray in this story is he lets his fear control him rather than his trust in God, where God had told him that he would be with him. And Genesis 32.6 uh, tells us what the news that Jacob gets that makes him sorely afraid. The messengers return to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him, 400 men with Esau. And it terrified him, and rightly so. It says it shows us what he did, and and instead of trusting God, he instead trusts in his pragmatism and his problem-solving. Now, this should sound familiar to you in your own life, is that when we're afraid of things, we try to patch it up and fix it ourselves pragmatically rather than spiritually. It says in verse seven, then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. So Jacob here is scrambling to minimize damage. What's clearly lacking is trust in God. He's willing to pragmatically fix things to where instead of losing everything, he'll only lose half of things. What he needed to do was trust God's leadership and the faith that God had called him to in the chapter before. In chapter 31, verse three, the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred and I will be with you. God's presence was promised. Even at the beginning of this chapter, in verse one, it says, Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him to prove that God was with him and that he could be trusted. God sends angels to be around Jacob. But what happens is fear produces amnesia in all circumstances. When we get afraid, we forget. You see, when we're fearful of the trials before us, we're forgetful of the trials God has already brought us through. I promise you God has blessed you. It might feel like you have a bad plight and that you've been dealt a hard hand, but I promise you that God has dealt graciously with you, that he has been faithful to you, that he has blessed you more than you deserve. I promise that. But when you're faced with fearful circumstances, what happens is you forget how faithful God has always been to you and how good he's been. Maybe, though, one of the most helpful things about carnal fear is that it thrusts us into prayer. Charles Spurgeon, uh, the, the old British preacher of the 19th century, famously said, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages that what Spurgeon was getting at here is that we can actually have an ability with our faith in Christ to be thankful for the things that are harmful but thrust us into a relationship with Jesus. It thrusts Jacob into prayer, his fear does, begging God to intervene. Let's read Jacob's prayer in verses nine through 12. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good. And make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Now, the only redeeming quality of Jacob is is the quality of this prayer. When he prays this, now he doesn't act out on this prayer, he doesn't actually put into action the good stuff in this prayer, but this prayer is a good example for us. I want to give you four helpful things about this prayer, particularly when you're encountering hardship or trial or you're fearful. Number one, is you acknowledge God's past faithfulness. Anytime you're asking God to be faithful and deliver you in a current trial, you acknowledge God's past faithfulness in previous trials. In verse nine, uh, Jacob uh, acknowledges that God is the God of his grandfather, Abraham, and was faithful to him. And he's the God of Isaac, his father, and he was faithful to him to endure and protect the second thing he does in this prayer, not only does he acknowledge God's past faithfulness, but he acknowledges God's commands. Again, in verse 9, he says, "He tells God, you told me to return to this land. He acknowledges God's law and God's command. And, and one thing that's helpful for us in our prayer is to examine ourselves and ask ourselves, are we actually living according to God's plan, following his law? Are we abstaining from sin and, and hating it and avoiding it? As we pray and ask for his help, have we Have we done the necessary work to avoid sin in our own hearts? Number three, he acknowledges his own sin. Verse 10, he mentions his unworthiness. He says that he is not worthy uh, of the least of the deeds of steadfast love. And so he acknowledges his uh, imperfections and unworthiness and sinfulness. And then number four, he acknowledges God's power. In verse 11, he acknowledges that God is able to deliver him. He says, please deliver me, God. He asks for the thing that is, is going to eliminate that fear. And when we learn to fully trust in the Lord, what happens is we begin to let go of all fear except for the fear of God, the reverence of God. What fear does is it gives us a helpful application of an emotion that God has given us. And so fear doesn't go away completely. It's redirected in a proper place. And so uh, Proverbs nine ten often a confusing passage for Christians because we, we we think, how can we be afraid of God or why should we be afraid of God? It tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And when we are afraid of the Lord, when we're fearful of him, it means we have reverence and respect for who he is. We acknowledge that he can take us out at any moment, that our life is in his hands, that he is completely sovereign, but also that he's good and holy and worthy to be worshiped because he's the only all-powerful one He is the only one to fear. And he's the only one that we worship as well. And so secondly, we let go of all worship except worship of God. It's easy for us to idolize and worship other things, isn't it? We worship our kids, we worship our spouse, we worship our careers, we worship our security. We worship a lot of things other than God. John Calvin said the human heart is a factory of idols. Once we put one to death, we begin building another one usually. It's because in our image of God that we're created in, we're designed to worship, but often we get off track and worship the wrong things. And here, Jacob is going to offer up an incredible amount of wealth to his God. He offers up an incredible amount of wealth as a gift, and he gives it to Esau, but he's not worshiping his brother. He's actually worshiping himself. He's worshiping the idol of safety and self-preservation. In verse 13, it says, so he stayed there that night, and from what he had, he took a present for his brother Esau. Now, after this, I'm not going to read it, but there's a list of livestock that's given. Um, it's, like, it's like Petco on steroids. Um, and, and I just look at it like, oh, he gave a bunch of pets to his brother and thought that would calm him down. Um, but in reality, this is a huge financial gift when you look at hundreds of goats and, and ewes, and rams, and the camels. Um, all of these would have, would have been a sign of, of a massive amount of wealth. And, and actually, in his conversations with Laban, he shows how wealthy he actually is. Just because I'm curious, and I know how to use Google, um, I actually tallied up how much it would cost to buy all these animals today. Animals are too expensive, first of all. Um, I don't know if it's an economic problem, but Animals be expensive right now. Um, But this list of animals we see in Genesis in modern day terms would cost $654,000. So he's given more than half a milli to his brother. And this isn't just a present. Look at verse 18. He tells his servants as they carry these animals and lead them out, he says, Tell them, uh, you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He says, Oh, it's just a present. Listen, like when I go out of town and I come back home and I've forgotten to buy my wife something, I buy her an airport hoodie. She's got tons of them. She's got Detroit, New York and all that. That's a present. Uh, Half a milli is a bribe. That's what that is, okay? So he he has reduced himself to bribery at this point to spare his own life. He is gonna give this massive amount of wealth away. The Bible actually exposes his intentions in verse 20. It says, you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us for he thought... I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. And what's so interesting about this is we have no hint of generosity in Jacob until this point. No hint of him helping the poor or giving money away or doing anything generous really at all until his life is at stake, and now he's going to give away a massive amount of wealth. When he had nothing to his name, He had actually promised to be generous, not to other people, not to his brother. He didn't promise God, I'm gonna gonna bring uh, restitution to the sin I committed against my brother. Instead, he he promised to be generous to God. In Genesis 28, he tells God of all that you give me, I will give a full 10th to you or a tithe. He promises that he would give money and he should have been paying tribute to the Lord, but instead he's paying tribute to his idol of safety. It's been said that Jacob is the character in the Bible with the most religion and the least morality. And you really see this on display here, where he has promised to commit financial wealth to the Lord's work, and instead he commits it to his own self-preservation. And we do the same junk. I think this is a particular temptation for us in Appalachia, Jacob being, being high in religion, but low in morality. I think in the Appalachian Mountains, all of us, almost all of us can point to, like, like everyone in here, we all had a pawpaw that was a preacher, right? Like, amen. We all, we all, somewhere back there, we all had a pawpaw or a great pawpaw that was a preacher. I hear it all the time, right? But you, you don't get into heaven because pawpaw was a preacher. And Jacob had the same thing. His pawpaw was the, the, the father of the faith, Abraham, the one who the covenant was given to originally. And, and Jacob had all of the religion and all of the culture of religion, but none of the commitment and work that religion called him to. And if we're not careful, we'll be like Jacob. We'll be religious when we need to be, and we'll look the part on Sundays, but we'll actually shallowly be committed to the gospel. In word only, but not in deed. Pray the right prayers, but not do the right things. You see, God is going to meet him in a shallow commitment, And when God meets him, he's going to wrestle with him. Y'all know wrestling, wrestling with an A. Um, God shows up and I'm I'm not joking. He literally just wrestles with Jacob, just challenges him to a cage match with chairs and tables and all that jazz, okay? Um, And if you don't believe me, the Bible's about to get real crazy and teach you some stuff. So let's go back through these two points. Number one, let go of all fear except fear of God. God shows up. And he wrestles with Jacob through the, through, the next, uh, through the ending of this chapter. Now, you might be like, why would God show up and physically fight Jacob? I don't know, but it's awesome. I'm so glad that he did. Um, I'm so glad that this fight between God and Jacob is in the Bible. It goes down in history with some of the best fights like Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier, the Thrilla in Manila, right? Rocky Balboa and that Russian guy in Rocky IV. Like that's a classic one. Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg, forthcoming, hopefully, um, will go down in history, and this wrestling match between God and Jacob um, is just legendary. Um, let's look at the, this story. Verse 22 says, "...the same night he arose and took his two wives, two female servants, his 11 children, and crossed the fort of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day." Now, we, we know from later in the scriptures that this is actually a theophany, an appearing of God the Son in a physical form and wrestling. So he, he wrestles with God. The ending of the chapter tells us that it is God. He sees God face to face. And this is a truly strange occurrence that happens in the Bible. And, and I, get at, I, I want us to look at why would God show up and wrestle somebody? What's, what's, he, trying to, what's he trying to teach Jacob here? Now, Jacob is left alone He sent everyone across the river. He's hung back maybe to pray or contemplate, um, but he's in the dark. He is, we know he's terrified. He's scared of Esau and 400 men that are coming to find him that could be coming out of the darkness at any moment. But instead he encounters God and he encounters him fearlessly. The only one that he should be fearful of, when other people encounter God, they, they shake in terror and fall on their face. But Jacob's like, let's go. He's like a redneck 10 millers deep when you said something bad about Dale Earnhardt. He's just ready to go. No fear, nothing gonna hold him back. And so he just jumps right in wrestling with God. And what God is showing Jacob is you're afraid of everything except me. Think about it. Jacob was so scared as a young man that he would not get the blessing and then his brother would instead. He, as, a, as, a, as an adult, he was so scared that he wouldn't get the girl of his dreams. He was so scared as a wealthy man that Laban would steal all of his stuff away. And here is an older man. He's so scared that Esau will kill him. His whole life, he's been a fearful boy. And what God is teaching him is that he is afraid of all the wrong things. Many of us worry about all kinds of things as well. We're fearful of all kinds of things. Anxiety has completely overtaken our society. And, and our, fear, our anxiety is not sin, but, but I think sometimes we are far too worrisome and fearful of the wrong things. I mean, we'll worry about everything except spiritual things. When's the last time you worried about somebody's soul who's not a Christian? When's the last time you felt anxiety about that and fear over that? And fearing God's plan and, and begging for your place in that plan. When's the last time you wept over God's cause instead of your own cause? Jacob's nation, Israel, would continue in this pattern of fearlessness, not fearing the Lord as they should. Second Kings 17 tells us to this day they do according to the former manner. They do not fear the Lord and they do not follow his statutes or the rules or the law or the commandment that the Lord commanded the children of Jacob whom he named Israel. Israel in Hebrew is a compound word, sarah and el, which means struggle and God. Israel is, is putting the word struggle and God together. And it's an indicator that God would struggle with his people whom he would save. And when I say that God struggles, don't mishear me. I don't mean that God is ever not going to save the elect or that he's insufficient or incapable. But, but what we see is that, is that the Lord has, just like, you know, your kids get annoying, right? Is this a safe place? Can we say that? Kids are annoying. And just as, as, as fathers and mothers, you get frustrated with your children and you wrestle and struggle with them as you raise them and teach them how to be a functional good citizen in this world. And you, get, and you struggle with that. The Lord would struggle with his people. I think a really good analogy to illustrate this is um, I saw a lot of Facebook posts and videos this summer of riptides at the beach I don't know if they were wilder this year or what, but I saw a lot of them. And I actually saw a video of, of one lifeguard who rescued someone out of a riptide. And the riptide had, had kind of pulled this guy out and, and the lifeguard swims out and saves him. And you think of the strong currents of a riptide that's pulling people out to sea, right? And as a lifeguard, you think the lifeguard isn't, here's the, here's the truth I want you to see. The lifeguard doesn't just have to fight the power of the ocean. He has to fight the power of the person he's saving also that, that I, I've heard it said that sometimes like in the Coast Guard, they even train people when they're doing water rescues to actually just throw a punch and knock someone out because in their panic, they're flailing arms everywhere and doing everything they can to keep their head above water so much so to the detriment of the actual rescue. And so the lifeguard's not just fighting the power of the ocean. He's fighting the power of the person he's trying to save. And it's the same thing with us is the Lord wants to do good in our lives and save us and rescue us and deliver us. But We're kicking and screaming the whole way. And the Lord struggles with us as he saves us. That's what Israel means, that that the Lord struggles and, and fights our resistance in saving us. Verse 25 says, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. So God is saving Jacob. God is doing something very good for Jacob but to Jacob it felt like assault. I go not It wasn't, it wasn't it didn't feel good to have your hip out of socket. And you just get the sense like God could just totally annihilate Jacob at any point, right? It's like he's he's wrestling and he doesn't have to get the, the greatest MMA hold on him to to get the upper hand instead he just touches his hip and then boom, it's out of socket. And I want I want you to think about this when your salvation feels sweet and when the, when the Lord's work in your life feels sweet, it's, it's easy for you to embrace it. But what about when salvation and sanctification feel painful to you? You see, God often uses rock-bottom circumstances to save people. God often uses grief and suffering to sanctify us and make us look more like Jesus. Can we remain faithful then and fear him instead of our plight? So to do that, we need to let go of all worship except the worship of God. Again, this appearing of God to wrestle with Jacob is what theologians call a theophany. It's a pre-incarnate appearing of God the Son, Jesus Christ, before his birth. Jesus, in Colossians 1.15, is described as the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And so Jacob is wrestling Jesus here. Jesus is is being subdued. Jacob, when you're just like watching the fight, it looks like Jacob's winning. Um, and, And and after a whole night of wrestling, like it's not just like a few rounds, it's like they wrestle all night. This is just the wildest story to me. We, we find Jacob with a dislocated hip, but at day, as the sun's coming up, he's still got Jesus in like a, a headlock or a chokehold of some sort. Look at verse 26. God says to him, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. God had merely touched Jacob's hip to dislocate it. Um, on Father's Day this year, I took Judah to a WWE event in Charleston. It's what all good fathers do on Father's Day. Jason Cook knows that's true. Um, and and we're, we're there and Ray Mysterio, y'all know Ray Mysterio? Can I get an amen for Ray Mysterio? Um, Ray Mysterio fought his son on Father's Day. It was just the most epic thing. And um, and Judah's watching it, and he's like, Dad, is this real? And I just had to look at him. I said, no, son, it's not real. I know that disappoints a lot of y'all in the room right now. Um, you, can, you can disagree with me. That's fine. But I told him, I was like, no, it's not real. But I don't want to discount how great of athletes these guys are, right? They're doing somersaults off the turnbuckles and all this stuff. But all along, they knew Dad was going to win that fight. Rey Mysterio is going to win. He's Rey Mysterio, right? Um, it's the same thing in, in this battle is that God could win the fight at any point, but he's teaching his son something. We know who wins, but we're still in the struggle. And, and God, even though he could destroy Jacob at any time, Jacob is still, you know, it's like he's giving him a noogie. Or you remember like when you get, get the hands of your, of your victim be like, stop hitting yourself. And he's just acting like a child. He, and he's begging for a blessing. God's like, bro, let me go. And Jacob says, I'm not gonna let you go, do you bless me? Like, say uncle. And the reason he wouldn't let the Lord go is because he was still worshiping himself. And God's just patiently wrestling with him. Why? I look at this story and I'm like, why would God do this? It's to teach Jacob about his new name. And it's to teach us something as well. See, he's gonna change Jacob's name to Israel. Struggle with God. Look at verse 27. God says to him, what's your name? And he said, Jacob. Remember, Jacob means usurper or deceiver. Verse 28 says, Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Now remember that compound word in Hebrew, Israel, means struggle and God. And I actually think it's a double entendre of sorts. That God struggles with those he is saving as we sinfully fight against him. But he also struggles for those he is saving. Child of God, hear me very clearly. Israel which spiritually speaking, if you read Romans 9 through 11, says that we are Israel if we believe in Jesus Christ. Israel means that God fights for you, not just with you. Your salvation is a result of you fighting against God, you shaking your fist at God, and God winning, winning your heart by his good grace. And then once we're children of God, God fights for us. Yet sometimes in life it feels like we're still struggling. We're still in the struggle bus, right? I get it, life's hard. But our admonition is that we give up the struggle to an all-powerful God. Before they entered the promised land, Moses told his protege Joshua that they were gonna face enemy and battle, military bouts. And he told him, you shall not fear them for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. And so I wanna ask you this morning, is the Lord fighting with you or fighting for you? Is the Lord wrestling against you and you're refusing to give up that sin? You're refusing to do the Lord's will? You're refusing to do what's pleasing to him and the Lord's fighting with you? Or have you already surrendered to him and the Lord is fighting for you, fighting your battles for you as you maybe fearfully serve him, but fear him much more than you fear your circumstances? Listen, if God is striving with you, my call to you this morning is give up, surrender. Stop fighting with God. Stop resisting his will in your life. And if you've surrendered to him and you're fearful of what's around you, remember and be encouraged that the Lord fights for you. Now, in the end of this chapter, God graciously blesses Jacob. Jacob does everything wrong. He worships his own safety and self-preservation. He literally fights God. He literally like has a fight with God and God still blesses him. Look at verse 29. Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. Just a quick little sentence inserted in there. God graciously blessed Jacob when he didn't deserve it. And isn't that all of our stories? We're all blessed and given grace at the exact time that we deserve it the least. That's what the gospel is all about. Jesus died to save sinners. While we deserve damnation and eternal wrath and punishment, Jesus died to save us. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose up on him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Now, I don't want you to miss this last little bit Moses gives us that Jacob is limping away from this battle. Now, from his standpoint, like he had Jesus in a headlock, right? Like none of us can say that, hopefully. Um, So he did pretty good in this match, but he walks away limping. Uh, British pastor Matthew Henry um, actually believes that Jacob limped the rest of his life because of this. And I think that's, that's a healthy reminder that the Christian walk is not supposed to be easy. Sometimes the best thing God can do for us is to allow pain to come to us. The greatest gift that Jacob could receive was that limp, that, that hip dislocated that reminded him that God was far more powerful than Esau. We encounter lots of struggles. Lots of things will bring us down. Real Christians don't walk with swagger. They walk with a limp like Jacob. And we've fought with God and we've been disobedient but he's blessed us and been gracious to us. And we limp our way to heaven to the glory of God. Amen. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.